If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd ask that you open it to the book of Romans. We'll soon be reading again, as we did last week, verses 16 and 17 of that chapter. If you do not have a scripture with you this morning, you can find one in the seat in front of you, in the pew in front of you, and you can find uh, Romans 1 on page 939 of that Bible. We realize, I think intuitively, that knowing the future is an incredibly difficult thing. The future is very nebulous. It's so uncertain that pinning anything down and saying, this will certainly happen is nigh impossible. It's easy to say it, I suppose. It's much harder to know it for certain. Unforeseen things happen on the regular here in this world. Absolutely no one in 2019 saw 2020 coming. No matter how much technology we have, no matter how advanced we get, we can't figure out what's going to happen in the future. Anyone who has ever looked at the weather understands that. Even those who are leaders in their field, the very pinnacle of those who are working in technology and other sectors, realize how difficult it is to say true things about the future. Bill Gates once famously said, no one will need more than 637 kilobytes of memory for a personal computer. 640 kilobytes ought to be enough for anybody. Thanks, Bill. That's like a fifth of a picture, man. Absolutely no one carries any electronics around with them that has less than that. To have less than that is to have nothing, is to have an Apple IIe in your back pocket, basically. The point is simply this. Walking around with supreme confidence in what you're doing, even if it's based on your own skill and prowess, is a difficult thing for anyone who knows how truly fickle the world is. And isn't that something that confidence is? Isn't confidence simply knowing the future and thinking that you know the outcome of what will happen? People will say, we're confident that we'll win this game, or that we're confident this will be a good investment, or we're confident that she'll say yes. And yet, as we come back to these two verses, verses 16 and 17, and look at the context leading up to it, we ought to be struck by how terribly confident Paul is. The guy is just incredibly bold. Paul, who more than almost any of us have experienced life's ups and downs, and probably knows better than any of us that he has no idea what to expect, drips with confidence in this passage, with boldness, with hope, and with assurance. And the good news for us is that as we read verses 16 and 17, we will realize that all that confidence, all that boldness, all that assurance is not found in Paul but is available indeed to us. The question is, what is Paul's great confidence in, and why is he confident in that? Let us read these two important verses. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of our God. First, let's speak of what Paul is confident in. Paul is confident in the preaching of the gospel. He's confident in the preaching of the gospel. To understand something of this confidence, we need to go back into verses 13 through 15 and realize what Paul is saying here. In verse 13, he talked about how he wants to come to the Romans, even though he's been prevented, 
so that he can reap some harvest amongst them as well as the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I I know if I show up and I get to preach the gospel, there will be fruit there for me. In verse 15, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He seems preeminently confident that the minute he opens his mouth in Rome and to the Greeks beyond, that there will be some fruit from that, that he will have a harvest that comes in. What gives Paul his certainty? It's not like Paul has struck gold everywhere he's looked and everywhere he's preached. In fact, at times, it's been a lot more filth than gold. Is Paul confident in his abilities? Is Paul confident in his ability to grow churches? Is he confident in his ability to produce theological works with great acumen and interest for others? Is Paul sure that it's his winning smile and personality that will bring people in? It's none of these things. It's clear that his confidence is in the preaching of the gospel. He turns around in verse 16. And anytime you read the word for, he is trying to ground and give an explanation of why he is these things. So he's saying, I know that I will have a good harvest among you. I know that I will reap some of it. I know that, so I want to preach the gospel to you. In verse 16, there's a reason why for, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Before you can be confident that you'll reap a harvest, you have to be confident that you can sow. Paul says, I know that I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you go to scholars, a lot of them will tell you that that word ashamed isn't what they say is psychological. It's not that Paul doesn't feel shame at the gospel, but rather it's simply the fact that he is willing to proclaim the gospel. He is willing to sign off on the gospel. That seems really odd to me that this isn't somehow psychological, that it wasn't a a state of Paul's emotions and mind when he says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, Paul is pressed in on both sides. The Jews hate him because, frankly, the exaltation of Christ reeks of polytheism to them. They, They see this as a denial of God. How can God come in flesh? And more than that, a crucified Messiah, this Jesus that he proclaims as Christ, is one who was killed as a common criminal. How could that possibly be our Messiah who would lead us to victory against all of our enemies? They want signs that tell them that this is true. On the other hand, the Greeks, they think Paul's a fool to think that gods would clothe themselves in flesh and that getting rid of that flesh and death, that they would then take that flesh back onto them is foolish. And Paul doesn't even believe in the pantheon of gods. He only believes that there's one God. What a fool. And Greeks proclaim we want wisdom. He perverted the religion of the Jews. He destroyed the social fabric and in many places the economy of the Greeks. So they persecuted him. Everywhere he went, persecution follows. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed, he means literally that the gospel is not a shameful thing to me. Because both the Jews and the Greeks would try to get him to see the shame in proclaiming that the Messiah is God on high who was crucified for your sins and resurrected for your life. Both the Jews and the Greeks would look at him and say, you need to give up this foolishness. You ought to be ashamed of this. But Paul would have none of it. He would not be shamed out of preaching the gospel to people. Whether the zealous Jews, the cultured Greeks, the rough barbarians, he will preach the gospel to them all. Indeed, there is both a sense of 
psychology that goes behind this shame and his being willing to profess the gospel and, indeed, a confession of the gospel. Paul seems to have readily heard the words of Christ. Mark 8, Jesus says this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This fits Paul's context incredibly well. It would be easy for him to give up the preaching of the true gospel. It would be easy for him to give that up and to turn to the applause of the Jews or to give it up and accommodate it for the beliefs of the Greeks. But Paul doesn't do that for he is not ashamed of the gospel. He will not forfeit his soul and he will not forfeit the gospel for the gaining of the world. But instead, instead he will do exactly what Jesus commands of him. He will not be ashamed. And there is a reason for this as the second part of our verse explains. Verse Paul is confident in the preaching of the gospel and he is that because Paul is confident in the power of the gospel. His confidence is not in his abilities, it is not in him himself, but it is in the preaching of the gospel. But why? Why does he have confidence in the preaching of the gospel? Why in simple preaching? Because Paul understands that in simple preaching there is much power. He says it is the power of God for salvation. What does Paul mean by power? Probably precisely what you think he means. The word power in the Greek means power. It means exactly the same way we use the word power, force, strength. If you go into the Old Testament, quite often it has that very normal meaning of strength. In a passage that we will read later, Habakkuk 3.19, Habakkuk writes, God, the Lord, is my strength. Exactly the same word. It also has the meaning of forces. So sometimes we use the word force to talk about military personnel. So if you read in the history book, our forces are landing at Normandy. We understand that that means a troop of soldiers are landing there. And continually throughout the Old Testament, it's used for that. It is also used to translate the commander of those forces. So the Lord of hosts oftentimes is using this word for power. It means he's the Lord of power. He is the Lord of strength. He is the Lord of hosts. It's how it's used in Zephaniah 2.9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of power. In the New Testament, this word is used often to speak of the miracles that Jesus did. Matthew 11.20-21. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works, that is, his powers, were done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works, or if the powers, or if the force that I had shown had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. It is honestly hard for us to imagine how much power there would have been in Jesus' miracles. I have just enough imagination to realize that I don't have nearly enough imagination to understand the terror that would have been present in that boat when he calmed the storm. It's one of those things you you honestly have to have been there for. To be a fisherman who is accustomed to the Sea of Galilee and who is accustomed to the amount of storms that might have come up and the force of those storms, to then be scared for your life and to have a man who is sleeping in the stern of the boat stand up and simply say, stop, and it stops. 
That would have been far more terrifying, far more terrifying than the storm itself. To see people with lame limbs atrophied, swell and grow with muscle in front of you. To watch leprosy fall off of people. To watch the dead rise again. For all of our achievements and power, for all of our advancements in medicine and technology, we can't do that. We can split the atom and we can make big bombs, but we cannot bring people back from the dead. All of this was to show God's power, the power of God, as Paul says here, in Jesus. And it was power that was clearly perceived. It was clearly recognized. You could watch those limbs heal back. Jesus demonstrated that power in magnificent fashion. So we should expect the same out of the preaching of the gospel. After all, Paul says, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God. So we should expect there to be tremendous power seen and evident in the preaching of the gospel. I mean, talking in tongues is just fine. Especially early on when you you have the demonstration of the truthfulness of the gospel and the work of God going forward. But where is the calming of the seas? Where is the healing of bones? Where is the raising of the dead and the preaching of the gospel? Are we wrong in our expectations? We don't see this happening in the New Testament all that much. Should we expect miracles? Well, yes, and probably no. No, we're not wrong to expect it, but we are likely wrong with the kind of miracles that we expect. Listen to how Paul speaks of this power of God in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 24. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the power of God to bring men and women to salvation. It is the converting power of God who takes people that were agnostic at best toward God, who ignored him and his commands and his laws, people who lived their own lives the way they wanted to and at best, at best, stumbled onto good living at worst, tremendously, with all the power and might that they had, worked against the very things of God. And in a moment, in the preaching of the gospel, changes them. Moves their heart from one of enmity with God to one of love and faith. First Thessalonians 1.4 says the same thing. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. He doesn't mean miracles by that. He's saying this is the demonstration that God has chosen you because our word came to you in power. What is that power? It wasn't the fact that Paul walked around healing people. It was the fact that Paul preached and the Thessalonians believed. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This is the miracle the news of which was spread throughout the world. The Thessalonians have believed in what faith they showed. What Paul speaks of here is no more and no less than the conversion of people to the truth of the gospel and the love of the one true and living God. Many people will downplay this as a miracle. I'll tell you, though, 
if Christianity is anything less than a miracle to you, then you have misunderstood what true conversion looks like and what true conversion is. If you were simply trying on Christianity like a pair of pants to see if it fits and it looks right on you, if you were living what you might call a Christian life simply because it's part of the culture or because of it's part of your nation or simply part of what your family did, my friend, you lack an understanding of the conversion and the miracle of the work of the gospel in your life. Christianity is just something that you do on your own. And you have missed it because the power of God is in converting people. The power of God is in changing hearts. There are three general ways the New Testament talks about this conversion. It talks about giving you new birth. It talks about giving you new life. And it talks about giving you new creation. Paul especially loves that last line, new creation. Continually, he refers to the fact that in the gospel, when men and women are turned back toward God, they are a new creation. It is God doing the same work that he did in the beginning. For God said, let light shine out of the darkness. The God who has said that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the creational power of God to speak and to make new again. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that one chapter later, he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The power of God shown here is the power of God to convert men and women from their death to their life, to give them new birth, to make them brand new. And many people have wonderful testimonies. They will stand up and they will talk about how wayward they were walking, how deep in sin they were, and how God showed up and they were powerfully converted. And others think of that. They say, well, my, my testimony is not, not like that. I wasn't doing all those evil things, but I know in my heart I was, I was set against the gospel. A friend, that is just as much of a miracle. That is just as much of a miracle as people who are hardened in their sin, walking in their sin, having God shown to them and having them turn around. It's the same substance of power. It is the power of God for salvation to turn somebody from their way and to put them on the good path of salvation. I was once lost, but now I'm found is a statement of miraculous power in the gospel. And therefore, as Paul says here, it's for all people. It's for the Jews and for the Greeks, it's for those who know the Old Testament. It's for those who love religion. It's for the Jews who strain after the law and Greeks who strain after wisdom. It's for those who seek the one true and living God. And it's for those who worship idols. It's for those who despise God and for those who don't care much either way. It's for all of those who are nice, put together, living quiet lives, who can fake their morality all day long and for the most hardened of criminals. It is the power of God for salvation. Paul had the utmost confidence in the preaching of the gospel, for God's power of salvation was seen in it. And that itself, Paul has confidence in, because third, Paul is confident in the prophecy of the gospel. Paul's confident in the prophecy of the gospel. Now, I personally have a love-hate relationship with almost any book or movie that depicts time travel. 
I always think that it's incredibly interesting and fascinating. I think that it brings up a whole bunch of paradoxes that I want to see those authors and the filmmakers really do well. And I'm almost always let down because they almost never do it well. There's always a problem with it. They, they make inane rules like, if you see yourself, you're going to go insane. I don't know why seeing yourself would make you go insane. I see myself in the mirror every day. I have yet to go insane. And if I walked through those doors, I think I would be like, we can time travel. That would be, literally be my first thought, right? So I don't know why it would make you go insane. There's all these problems that people bring up, but it's never quite handled well. But there is one writer who has done it perfectly, who's managed to give us the sense of time travel where there are no paradoxes, there, aren't no, there are no loops, there are no difficulties that we see. And it is right here in the gospel. Because this is time travel, in a sense. What you see in the cross of Jesus Christ and what you hear in the proclamation of the gospel is the judgment of the end. Already happened in real time. Paul gives us a couple of hints here that this is true. First, the righteousness of God, this kind judgment of God, as we talked about last week, is revealed. That revealing doesn't just mean making something known which was hidden, which is the normal way we use of revealing, but it's the same word that we have for apocalyptic, that talking about the end things. It's a revelation of not just what was hidden, but what will be in the end. Paul also here speaks of salvation, which is almost always for Paul a future thing. There's almost always a future sense to salvation. Some try to deaden this by talking about a spiritual salvation. And as far as you want to press that, that's very well and true. But realize when Paul talks here about salvation, he has a much more deep and abiding sense of salvation than simply that. The word saved is used most often in Greek literature, and it's even used in Scripture to mean simply healed. Both healing and, as a verb, to heal. A really nice picture of this comes in the book of Matthew. And if you read this passage in the ESV, you would just hear the passive verb, made well. You have been made well. But the whole in Christian standard Bible, or whatever it's called, from 2017, translates it in such a way that it helps to bring out this little nuance. This is Matthew 9, verses 21 and 22. A woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached him from behind and touched the end of his robe, for she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. Saved there is exactly the same word as be made well. And the woman was made well from that moment. You could easily translate that and not be terribly wrong to say, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be saved. And Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. And that woman was saved from that moment on. For Paul and for others who believed in the bodily resurrection, salvation would be nothing less than that. It is a final and full healing of a body that is broken by sin, that is racked with the, the weariness of time. Your mortality weighs upon you. You feel it in your joints. You feel it all the day long. And as you get older, you feel it more and you feel it more. And there will be a day when God will take that away and you will be saved in the full sense of the word, your spirit, your soul, and your body. There's a 
picture in salvation and even talking about salvation that always looks at the end. So we would see here that the cross and the resurrection occur in the past. They impact us now and they demonstrate the truth of the future. And I want to be clear, it's not a symbol of the future. The cross of Jesus Christ is the future. It is precisely what has happened. Our judgment before the throne of God at the end of days has already happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Our future is written in the past, so to speak. The cross and the resurrection are not just what will or has happened, but it is what has happened already in the future. This is why Paul is so certain of the outcome of which he speaks throughout the entire book of Romans, why he is so assured of all of these things being true. Because the final judgment has been passed. If you have already passed the final, you don't have to worry about the class. If you sit down and you read a mystery novel and you find out that it was Colonel Mustard, when you read through it again, you know who's killed him. You know the end before you get there. So Paul's response is simply, trust. Trust it. What does he say? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, and you go back to those those scholars and they will, many of them say, Paul's playing fast and loose with Habakkuk here. He doesn't really say this. This It's not really what Habakkuk means. While we're not going to read the entirety of that beautiful three-chapter book, I am going to preach you a mini-sermon through Habakkuk, simply going over what Habakkuk says. This will be incredibly brief because I know you're worried about it. In the first four verses of Habakkuk, Habakkuk has a complaint. He says, I look around at your people Israel, and there is sin and violence and injustice everywhere. Why would you let this be? Verses 5 to 11, God says, oh, oh, I'm not going to. I'm going to punish them. As a matter of fact, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, these mighty warriors, this war machine. I'm going to bring upon my people, and I'm going to lead them into exile. Habakkuk, in verse 12 of the first chapter, through the first verse of the second chapter, says, uh, uh, well, that's, that's not really what I meant. Like, I understand that you're super holy, and so I, I don't want to walk. He's being very cautious with his language, but he says, but you know, the Chaldeans are like much, much worse than we are. And so while you should punish us, I don't know how you can use them, but you're God, you can do what you want. God's answer to him in this, in, in verses two through four of the second chapter are these words. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. What God says there is, listen, Habakkuk, I have a vision for you, and you need to write it down, and you need to make it perfectly clear so that everyone who reads it will understand And it might seem like it's slow in coming. It might seem like it's delayed. But nevertheless, it will come. Babylon thinks that it is mighty. His soul is puffed up within him. Nebuchadnezzar and all the Chaldeans think that they are greater and mightier and they are above all things. But I will show them that they are not. 
you will live by your faith. In verses 5 through 17 of that second chapter, God outlines how Babylon will indeed get theirs, how they will become the spoil, they will wail, they will cry, they will be ashamed. In 18 through 20, God makes it clear why this is true. It is true because all of this is because of their idols. They have listened to their idols. They have followed their idols. They are idol worshipers, and God will remove them from the face of the earth to show that his mighty right hand is greater than any power in the earth. In the third chapter in verses 1 through 16, Habakkuk recalls the very echoes of the exodus reminding himself and his hearers that God will indeed lead his people out again. He will show up as a mighty God, as a warrior, who brings plagues on Egypt. He will once again bring plagues on the enemies of his people, and he will lead them out. He will be the warrior for them. And therefore, the very ending of the book, Habakkuk says, I won't trust what I see around me. Everything can fail. Everything can go away. I can be left desolate, alone, and dying. And I will rejoice in my Lord. I will trust what I've heard. So, given that, how do the righteous live in Habakkuk? What does it mean for the righteous to live? Well, first, fairly straightforward, God's decree that the Babylonians are going to come believing in that and believing that God has decreed that they will destroy Israel, will save your life. This is kind of corroborated with Jeremiah when he says, pack up your things and go with them. If you fight the Babylonians, you will die. Your life will not be spared. If you do not trust that I am handing you over, believe me, you will be handed over by life or by death. So simply go along with it and you will live and I will allow you to flourish in another land. But second, the statement has to be taken generally. That is, those who believe always will live and live eternally. Here is meant to help Habakkuk to understand that while death presses in around him, God will still grant him life. This is the point of that beautiful last stanza in the, in the book. When figs and olives fail and herds and flocks die, there is famine in the land, there is no food, and you will die. Nevertheless, he says, even though death is surrounding me, even though my death is inevitable, I will praise the God who gives salvation. Because he doesn't just expect an exodus from Babylon, he expects an exodus from death. And that is what is pressed into us. What the prophet only got to hear, we have seen in fullness. He only heard of the Chaldeans' destruction, the truthfulness of the vision we have seen. God has indeed acted faithfully to his word. He has indeed done exactly what he told Habakkuk he would do. But we get something better. We know the future because we know the past. This is why, Paul says, our faith goes from faith to faith. It's a very slippery phrase. It can mean a number of different things. Does it mean ever-increasing faith? Yes. Our faith is always on the, the increase, both personally, hopefully, but also in terms of the knowledge that God has revealed. When God calls Abram in the desert, in Ur, 
Abram knows almost nothing about the, the faithfulness of God. He has seen, perhaps, and heard stories of Noah being led through the flood, but that's it. He doesn't know the future, and he doesn't know much about the past. When you come to Habakkuk, he knows nothing about the future. He knows the vision, but he doesn't know it concretely. But he knows a lot about the past. He sees and has heard of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has seen and heard of God's faithfulness in the Exodus. He has seen it and read of it in Joshua and Judges. He knows that God is faithful to his people. What's even better is that we believe in God. Neither Abram nor Habakkuk was able to know the future, but we do. We know the future because we know the past. Our faith is more concrete and certain because of this. It is an ever-increasing faith. Secondly, the phrase could simply mean it's all of faith. That is true. Paul is emphasizing it is not on the basis of works that you are saved. It is all of faith. It is from first to last filled with faith. How does this salvation make known to you? Not because you do what is right, but because you believe and trust in the vision, just like Habakkuk said. Thirdly, doesn't mean from God's faithfulness to ours. I see no reason why it wouldn't be. Certainly, we are right given the insistence of Habakkuk to trust in the vision that it is God's faithfulness to what he has decreed that ought to inspire our faithfulness to buy into it. If God was a faithless God, you have no reason to believe in him. But because God has proven himself to be true and right and good at every turn, You have every reason to believe in him, and all the more so now, because we see the final judgment of us in Christ happening already in the past. God has proven himself faithful in all things. All of his promises have come true and are good. So friends, do not slouch toward the finish line. Don't let your faith tire as you get older. Have great and abiding confidence in the gospel. Have confidence in the gospel that the Spirit will work through your preaching. How are you different from Paul? What what was it about Paul in particular that allowed him to proclaim the gospel and to see a great harvest come in that you don't have access to? Do you not have the same Spirit? Do you not have the same gospel? You have everything you need to proclaim the gospel and to see a harvest come from it. Have confidence in that. Whether you speak to those who are great or small, whether you speak to those who are like you or those who oppose you, whether you speak to those who are nice, kind, and gentle and overwhelmed by their sin, or whether you speak to those who are rough, rude, and angry and overwhelmed in their sin, the gospel can save them all. Know also that you ought to have confidence in the conversion of God. The gospel is not just something to proclaim. The gospel is not just something to speak of. It is not just doctrine. The gospel is something to experience. And if you have never experienced that, cry out to God. He's faithful. And he's good to answer those who call upon him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you do not know the power of God working in your life to convert you, if you have never felt your heart softened by the gospel, cry out to him. And what's more, have confidence finally in this gospel to deliver you. There will be times in your life 
when you are more surrounded by darkness than light. When sin will press in upon you and you cannot shake it. When darkness, pain, grief, loneliness, strife, and confusion are your everyday experience. Friends, be strong in the faith. Trust in the vision that Paul has given to us. The vision of the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as what has happened and what will be true forever and ever. And know that deliverance is coming. The exodus has already started to take place. Wait on it, although it delays, for it is sure in coming. For while everyone else is unaware of what will happen in the future, friend, you are not. You know that God is true and good to his word because you have seen it in action. Jesus Christ is no longer dead, and therefore you will not truly ever die. It is those who persist in faith who are more than conquerors, so cling to the word. Let not death and distress trouble you. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the product of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for the gift of the gospel. Not only is it a great gift to us, but you promise to work through us as we speak of your great love and the gift of Jesus Christ. Give us, your people, confidence to speak of Jesus Christ, of his sacrifice in our place, the great salvation that is afforded to us through his work. May we be not ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is indeed your power for salvation, demonstrating to us the truth of what indeed will be. May we cling to that hope, speak of that hope, live in that hope for our good and for the good of your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you will